if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Almost every single discussion between Protestants and Catholics is haunted by the role of tradition in Catholic theology. Catholics believe that God's Word has been revealed in the written scriptures and the teaching of the apostles that has been handed down through the ages in the living teaching of their successors, the bishops and popes of the church. To most Protestants, this sounds blasphemous and idolatrous elevating the words of men over the unchanging word of God. One of the battle cries of the Protestant Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone, as the only authoritative source of truth. So, when they ask what the church ought to look like and how it ought to behave, when they need models for worship or sacraments or governance or culture, they naturally go to the Bible and look at how it describes the life of the church in the first few decades after Pentecost, when the book of Acts and the various epistles were written. That becomes their baseline for the life of the church. And for some Protestants, particularly non-denominational evangelicals that lack a, a sort of historical tradition, this prevents any real growth or development. They want to hold on to and reproduce the patterns and behaviors and structures of the early Christians. And this shuts down dialogue with Catholics and makes them deeply suspicious of and sometimes even hostile towards Catholicism. Their argument is that much of Catholicism consists of extra-biblical inventions that have corrupted the pure church of the first generation. Cory Lakatos, who regular listeners have gotten to know through our book club episodes, and I sat down one afternoon at the One Ruling Adventure secret outdoor compound to discuss this phenomenon which I have come to call the Year Zero Problem. So, Corey, there's this, I don't know, phenomena mm -hmm. is the right word, but this aspect, let's say, to Protestantism in general, but evangelicalism in particular, mm -hmm. because at least the what we would call the mainline traditional Protestant denominations have are, are not as completely susceptible to this. And maybe we can sure. talk about why later. But let me get into it. it what if they, they have what I have come to think of as a year zero problem or the year zero problem. Okay. And what I mean by that is that. When it comes to trying to understand what the church should be, what Christian faith should consist of, they continually want to hearken back to the first 
years after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. So continually you'll say, well, what was the church like in Acts chapter two and Acts chapter three or right in the book Mm -hmm. of Acts? Right. And, you know, so it's not technically year zero, but year two, three, four, whatever. Year zero of the church. Yeah. Well, and and even like the first years of the church, what Mm -hmm. was the, what were the first couple of years of the church like? And that that's normative. Um, And that's the only thing that's normative. We should always be trying to go back or return back to the practices of the the first years of the church. Because the notion is that was the pure church. That was what came directly from Jesus. And so how do we continually return to those practices, to that theology, to that worship, to whatever it is? And everything that has come since then is irrelevant or in some sense becomes subject to a kind of entropy that it falls off from that. Mm -hmm. And I think in evangelicalism, there's a sort of revivalist or uh, instinct that says, how do we continually get back to the first days of the church? Right. And and I think I can see a certain, um, I mean, there's, there's a certain healthy revivalism because of course we are sinners and we're always needing to be called to, to repentance and revival. And the church herself at large is always called to that. Um, but yeah, that, that's different from saying that we need to sort of be consciously modeling ourselves on, on, you know, the nuts and bolts of what the church was doing in the first few years. Yeah, I, I think there's kind of a term for it that gets used uh, sometimes in theology, a, a sort of Christian primitivism. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah, um, primitive, obviously what comes first or what is, what is most, um, you know, uh, fundamental or or simple. Um, and so that perspective often thinks that things have gotten complicated over time. We've added stuff, things have degraded, or there's been entropy, as, as you said earlier. And we've just got to strip all that away and get back to what it was like before. Right. Yeah. It is kind of fundamentalist, uh, fundamentalist with respect to Bible, but also mm-hmm. fundamentalist with the life of the church. You know, when I first was a, when I was like a high school student or whatever, and I was first kind of hearing about the Jesus movement or whatever, Mm. you know, you had these kind of uh, Jesus movement Christian rock bands and stuff. And one of them, second chapter of Acts, because the whole idea was how do we go back to the second chapter of Acts? And the sense that that was the church in its purest, best form. I mean, it's, it's kind of like a, what, what, like almost a utopian sort of vision Mm -hmm. and that everything has degraded since then. As you said, everything has been added onto junk has gotten in the way. And what it does is it sort of invalidates the church of history Mm -hmm. and it leads to a sort of poverty in the church in the sense that we never learn or grow ever, right? Like I always want to get back to when I was, you know, a kid again. Right. And there's of course something beautiful about childhood and there is something beautiful and important about the childhood of the church. And of course that's when Christ first rose and when he first ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. And, and so of course that's a place to start and it it does have to be important in our, in our individual lives as Christians and in the life of the church. But it would be disordered to stay a child your right. whole life. And that's weird, right? Mm-hmm. Dis- like you say, it's disordered. Um, it's against natural law and, and order. And it's also weird. It's just a weird idea. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't go to somebody and say, hey, you want, the, the, the trick is to act like you're five years old forever. Mm-hmm. Right. Like nobody wants that. Well, and, and it would just be impractical. You, you can't actually manage that. Well, and we resent people who don't learn. Mm-hmm. 
right? I mean, when you, when you know adults and you go, this person never learns, they never grow, they never develop. Mm-hmm. So the notion that the church has never, should never have grown, never have developed, never had matured is, I think, the year zero problem. Well, and, and I think it is evidence of, I don't want to say lack of faith because I don't think it's that, but it's, it's not knowing that the Holy Spirit is persevering with the church, um, that well, what Christ said to Peter, that, that the gates of hell will not overcome the church, that the Holy Spirit is, is guiding and is the principle of growth in the church. And if we have too much anxiety about the, the idea that the church will, will degrade or, or become corrupt, I don't think we are, are focusing enough or we have enough faith in the fact that the church is the body of Christ animated by the Holy Spirit, and, and he's not going to let the ship sink. Right. Well, and it robs you. And I think that really is kind of the right word. It robs you of all of the insights of a hundred generations of Christians, yeah, yeah, right, who have lived through these things. I mean, uh, and grown and developed. You know, you wouldn't want to say in some other field. You wouldn't want to say with technology or engineering that over time anything that has happened since right. you know the Greeks is thrown out because then you would rob yourself of all of the insights and discoveries. Right. Let's go back to ancient Greek medicine. Right. Let's go back to ancient Greek. Although that primitive instinct, you see that a lot in say holistic medicines or whatever. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to ancient you know uh, poultices right. and and herbs because I don't trust the development of medicine. And and I think. As with most heresies or errors, it's it's an excess of proper and good instinct that there, of course, is always something to learn from the beginnings of things. And sometimes simple is good and we can we should never lose sight of that. I mean, no one is arguing, we're not arguing that we should lose sight of Acts chapter 2 right. or that it shouldn't inform us. It, it should. And maybe sometimes because of our sin, we are getting away from fundamentals and we do have to recognize that. But that's not to say that we shouldn't move on to Acts chapter three and four and five and 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 into right. the history of the church because that is is also very necessary and very important. Well, of course, one of the things is the book of Acts only captures a snapshot mm-hmm. of the first few years of the church, of the first couple of decades of the church because right. the book of Acts ends with Paul on his way to Rome. Mm-hmm. He never gets there. Uh, you, you know, I remember when I was uh, younger and I would have people say, um, well, you know, we don't really know where, where Paul went. You know, he, he, some say he died in Spain. Some say he went to Britain. Some say, like, and it's time when I go, who says that? Right. Well, they go, it never, it, but the Bible doesn't say that he, and people would say, uh, well, he can't be in Rome where the Catholics claim. And you go, why not? Because I've, I've been to his tomb. I've knelt in front of this tomb. I've seen it. And they go, well, it can't be because that's not in the Bible. That's not in the book of Acts. You go, but the Bible was written before he died. I well, mean, him being in Britain or Spain isn't in the Bible either. So. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> just disappear? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, the book of Acts was written by Luke before Paul died. <laughs> so that isn't in there. And so it does, it captures a snapshot. I think there's a fear that goes with this, that over time people will add to or degrade from or invent weird heresies and that that there'll be a deviation mm-hmm. from the truth, the pure truth as Jesus laid it down to the apostles sort of in the year zero. And I heard somebody give an analogy about this once that I thought was brilliant and I, I can't remember who gave it, did, did it. 
So if you're listening out there and you know who get, if you're, if you're the one who said this, then I give you full Claim credit. credit. Yeah, I give you full <laughs> props on this one. But it was a great, it was a great analogy. And they said, uh, who knew more about the Trinity, St. Peter or St. Thomas Aquinas? And they said, well, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas could explain the Trinity in a hundred pages, in enormous complexity, with deep insights and categories and relate it, you know, to the Old Testament and other parts of the New Testament and, and really unpack it. And it's not clear that St. Peter could do that because he didn't benefit from 1,200 years of reflection and study. But on the other hand, St. Peter knew the Trinity. Right, knew, walked around with the second person of the Trinity. And, well, and Aquinas, of course, well, couldn't have the knowledge that he had if St. Peter hadn't right. walked around with the second person of the well, Trinity. Well, right. And at Mount Tabor, right, at the Transfiguration, mm-hmm. you know, Peter was there, right, to see mm-hmm. here's, you know, the Father right, yeah, and the, the Son of the, the right. The theophany of the whole Trinity. The theophany of yeah. the whole tr- the tr- Trinity. So, in a sense, St. Peter knew the Trinity. He may not have been able to explain the Trinity to the depth or in or articulated in the ways that, that Thomas Aquinas did. Thomas Aquinas built upon Peter's insights and what Peter taught the church. And then 1,200 years uh, approximately of Christians reflecting on what Peter shared allowed Thomas Aquinas to have a treasury of information and knowledge, not new revelation, Mm-hmm. But simply to reflect it more deeply and to bring, um, I mean, unpack word or clarity to it, mm-hmm. and I think that goes to the issue too of the notion of Catholic tradition, right? Right, which is what that year zero is so suspicious of. Catholics have, you know, what we just have is the Bible and what Jesus laid down in you know the first years, um, and it sort of ignores the fact that the Bible was compiled over time by the church. Mm-hmm. But even setting that issue aside, this notion that the church over time, it's suspicious that the church is going to make up new stuff mm-hmm. and the church has made up new stuff. When in a lot of ways, what the church has simply done or does is it peers more deeply mm-hmm. into you know, the revelation of God's word. Yeah. And, and I think, again, that's the corruption or the misuse of a legitimate instinct, because, of course, we should be alert uh, for, for heresy, for error in ourselves and invention. And, right. Um, but it's it's taking that suspicion and directing it towards the church, which is the guardian of the deposit of faith. Um, that's that's the issue, directing that suspicion onto the authority. While, while you were just talking about that, um, it occurred to me that if you have this um, primitivist mindset and you want to only go to the scripture, um, which of course, as Catholics, of course, we're going to the scripture, that, that's primary source material. But, but if that's what you're limiting yourself to, to the exclusion of the tradition, to the magisterial teachings of the church, then by trying to get to year zero, ironically, what you usually end up getting to is the year 2022 or whatever year you happen to be in because your ability to understand the scripture and to understand what was happening in year zero is limited by the fact that you're not there and by the fact that the scriptures doesn't record everything, that it's not systematic. It doesn't tell you a systematic uh, program for church governance or for how to explain the Trinity. It reveals the Trinity because of, again, the transfiguration and, and many other things in the New Testament that reveal the triune nature of God to us, but it, it doesn't have a, a full, um, you know, explication of that. And so when you go to that with nothing but your own personal reason and understanding, oftentimes what you get 
is today's understanding of Christianity rather than year zero's one understanding of Christianity. That's a great insight because what ends up happening is when you have, so this whole year zero thing, you, you, you're imagining what things were like. Mm-hmm. You don't really know. I mean, you have some You verse, can know some things, but- You can know some yeah. things, but you can read, for, let me give you a good example. Okay, so you can read certain things in the book of Acts, for example, mm-hmm. and then you try to imagine what those looked like. But of course, if you're stuck with the year zero problem that you can't look at anything that has occurred over the last 2000 years since then till Mm -hmm. now, you have by analogy, you end up interpreting or filling in or imagining what was happening in the book of Acts through the interpretive lens of what you see today. And let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. House churches. Okay. So when I first became a Christian, the whole big thing was, you know, the church shouldn't have buildings and blah, blah, blah. And, and the early Christian just met in houses, you know, it was just house churches. And so then it was imagining what those house churches must have been like by analogy through what our houses were like. Mm -hmm. Right. So you know, when I lived in a in a university town, it's like, well, we have, you know, apartments and student apartments and a house church must have been a lot like this. And people just kind of came over and we had, you know, you know, chips and salsa and we had this and that. And we kind of hung around on the sofa and we like prayed and we read the Bible and right. Mm-hmm. And that was house yep. church. Yep. And you go, okay, because you go, well, they met in houses and they did church in house. And this is what our houses are like. And their houses must have been like ours. And right. So you end up imagining the people of that day as being more or less exactly like you. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem as, as you get archeologically into what the house churches were like. Or even just other extra biblical documents, the the early saints. Yeah. they, They weren't like what we imagine a house church would be like because a Roman domus, which was the Latin word for house, was not very much like our houses. Yeah. Uh, and while there certainly were poor Romans who had a, the equivalent of apartments, when we go back to the first decades or the first hundred years of the church and you start actually literally digging up the first house churches, I think the earliest one is in Syria. Uh, I read an article once uh, in a biblical archaeology journal that they had, you know, there's excavations of a church that dates back to like the year, I don't know, like 80 or something in, in Syria, like near Antioch or yep. whatever, where it was. And what they dug it in was a Roman domus, which was a very large house and structure with a big courtyard and this and that. And then there was a section of it that was sectioned off to essentially be what we might call a chapel. Mm-hmm. And it had rows and seats and it had a baptismal font and it had an altar and it had on the walls frescoes with biblical scenes. Mm-hmm. And so it was more like a small church chapel that met in these domus houses. And a lot of times they were put in a house, but a house that was a very large house, maybe the the home of somebody in the local church who was prominent and, you know, a wealthy or a business person or whatever, and had a Roman domus and they constructed this church and liturgies were performed there. Well, and the reason of course, that they did it in someone's house like that is because they weren't at liberty to have a public building for various reasons in the early centuries. So then you say to yourself in 2022 or whenever, um, is it, the best idea to have church in my house simply because that's the way they, they did it? Or or is there practical considerations that, that say maybe that's not the best way to do it now? Right. And, and are you making that 
that judgment call on your own or with the benefit of tradition and, and with the guidance of the contemporary sure. church? Oh, here's another one, right? So yeah. since we're talking about liturgy, mm-hmm. um, worship. So you would say, well, Paul says, you know, you know, when you come together, sing sim- hymns and songs and spiritual songs with gladness and praise in your heart. And you go, that seems pretty simple, right? So there's a whole evangelical Christian music tradition where we sing hymns and songs of spiritual praise worship and all that with guitars and everything else, because especially when that, that music was being generated in the 70s and 80s, it was a bunch of people, you know, with, you know, blue jeans or shorts and guitars and t-shirts mm. singing you know, folk, you know, what were 70s and 80s folk music with Christian lyrics. Right, right. And they would say, well, look, see, here's our proof text. Sing hymns and things and make spiritual music. Well, what is the assumption that music in first century Antioch was like music in 1980s Southern California? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, what we know is that music and those things were very different in those days and that there were prayers that were recited prayers and that, that, that there were things that looked very much more liturgical. You know, uh, the church's liturgy um, is not something that was imposed on. I think this is where the, sort of the, the mindset is, is the early Christians must have looked very much like me. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff that the Catholic church has, the buildings and the liturgy and the priests and the this and the that was all invented later. It's not what was going on in the year zero. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, those first Christians came out of the Jewish rites and a lot of the practices of Judaism. Um, you know, you would go to the synagogue. Jesus went to the synagogue in mm-hmm. Nazareth, right? And he sat and the scroll was brought to him and there was there was right. patterns of worship. Well, even the pagans who are becoming Christians, the Greeks or other, other peoples in the Roman Empire, wouldn't have expected just a house party with some singing for right. worship. That, that would not have been their context for how you worship a god. Correct. So Exactly. So what you end up with is us sort of imposing our imagination because in a sense, the year zero is kind of a blank slate mm-hmm. that you can project back whatever you want upon. Right, right. You know, I remember that in the, hmm, I guess it was in the 90s, it was a huge thing for a while, Celtic Christianity. Yeah. And part of this was, and I, I was, you know, fascinated by it because I was starting kind of my road to Rome and, you know, one of the most you know, seminal moments in that whole experience for me was going to Ireland and to this place called Skellig Michael and having this Mm -hmm. sort of, you know, kind of a spiritual moment there. And so I was like, for a little while, a couple of years, I got really amped up about Celtic Christianity because of my connections with Ireland, Scotland. I was like, oh man, I'm really going to get into this, you know? And I went and, you know, got little, you know, Celtic crosses from the, from the Christian Mm -hmm. bookstore Mm -hmm. hung around on my office walls. And I got really kind of into it, but I figured out after a couple of years that Part of the appeal in the 90s, 1990s of Celtic Christianity was that it was a blank slate in which people in the 1990s could project upon that anything they wanted. Right. They imagined that because of the historical situation that they're, you know, in the aftermath of the fall of the Roman Empire, that communication was harder and that, um, you know, intercourse between Rome and, and Ireland was more difficult, that, that somehow... A, a church in Ireland had had arisen that was basically what I want, would want it to be. What I would um, imagine it to be. And right. then there was this uh, synod in the ninth century called, I think it was the synod of Whitby, Whitby or something. Yeah, yeah, Whitby. And Whitby came down and, you know, crushed. So Rome sort of crushed the, mm-hmm. you know, natural Irish church. And so we have no records of it. And that's that's the good, that's, that's <laughs> the good news is there's no written records of it. So it could be 
whatever the, 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 right. the worship and the theology and the practice could be basically whatever I in the 1990s w- want to imagine that it was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this year zero thing is, is a little weird because on the one hand, it, it appeals because it is this blank sheet of paper upon which you can imagine anything because there's so few records. Yes, there's the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's some hints in the epistles, but it largely becomes this thing of what did actually people, what did their worship look like? What mm-hmm. was their ecclesiology like? What did the church buildings or church house churches look mm-hmm. like? You don't know. So it can be whatever you want. Yeah, well, and and what you can know, because of course we have writings of like St. Justin Martyr, like around the turn of the first to the second century, like we, in, unless you believe that Christian worship radically changed between like the year 33 and the year 100, um, we, we have some idea of what Christian worship was, was like in the early centuries. Heck, and, I'll push back on that. Yeah. We have the Didache. Sure, which is a little earlier. Which is yeah. like, you know, depending on when you date the Didache, and there's all these arguments, but but the argument is the Didache, the latest probably practical date for it was 90 mm-hmm. to 95. There's a lot of arguments that the Didache is dated more like in the 70s. Right, so you're putting it contemporaneous with, with biblical... You're, yeah, 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 it's around the same time that some of the later later epistles are being written or some of the later gospels. I mean, mm-hmm. It's contemporary with the apostles. I mean, Peter yeah. and Paul died in 65. Mm-hmm. And so the Didache may have written with the five, 10 years. You can go back to Polycarp, who was a direct disciple of the apostle John. So here's the apostle John who was in Ephesus and Polycarp was his uh, well, um, protege. Mm-hmm. And so you can go back to Polycarp and start seeing what the church was like the, in the generation, more or less of the apostles are immediately after. And then you can do things like extra biblical sources. You can go and dig stuff up. You can go to archaeological digs and look what, what Antioch and Ephesus was like in the first century. You can look, like you say, at extra biblical Roman and Greek sources and see what culture was like in those days. And what you find out is it it didn't look very much like, you know, 1980s California. Right. And you can see that it is the, the precursor, the natural precursor of, of what the Catholic church has developed in, in the intervening centuries. And I think just to kind of, uh, also talk about the, the Celtic Christianity thing. I mean, you can look at what, you know, they were debating at uh, things like the Synod of Whitby and it was things like the dating of Easter and, and liturgical things. It wasn't like they were debating, well, the Celts, you know, sang with guitars in their houses and, and looked like the 1990s evangelicals and the Romans were these, you know, dictatorial liturgists. Like right. they were, they were arguing about differences in something that is, is essentially from the same root, the same source. Although to be fair, I think it was 832 was Whitby. But in any case, one of the, the most interesting things debated at Whitby was the shape of the tonsure for the monks. Ah, yes. And so, <laughs> right? And so the, Which is a live issue in evangelical circles, right, I'm sure. Yeah, right. And, 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 and it's, let's just be honest, it's funny. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, right, like it's like the Ministry of Funny Walks thing. So the, the Latin monks shaved the top of their head mm-hmm. and apparently they won the argument and suppressed the monks who would, it was weird. Apparently what they did is they gave 
themselves male pattern baldness. Because mm. what they would do is they would shave from, like if you took a line over the top of your ears, mm. they would shave forward of their ears. So right. it looked like, you know, like kind of like a mullet. And and so like, you know, the, the delegates from Rome put down the mullet monks hard. And uh, so, but yeah. yeah I mean, and so know. this was about, you know, uniformity um, of, of liturgy and practice, but it, it wasn't as if they crushed some kind of proto evangelical movement in Ireland. No, exactly. And and it's the the point is not to gang up on some of that cuz there mm. but the the point is is that it I was I was saying the thing about the appeal of that for in the 1990s to a lot of Christians was it became that you could seek authority in this sort of unknown mists of time thing. And there's always this instinct when you do, I I like your point about when you go back to what sources we do have from archeological, archeology, span extra biblical sources, early Christian sources. What we realize is that the church, the Catholic church grew organically out of those things. And so it wasn't something that was invented by Constantine 300 years later and imposed on it. And just as a quick aside on that, you know, this is, this is a whole nother issue, a whole nother thing to talk about. But, you know, I have friends who are Greek Orthodox mm. and, you know, one of their arguments, the Greek Orthodox argument is if you really want an ancient church, you know, you really want to get back to the early church, go for Greek Orthodox sure, sure. rather than the church of Rome. And I guess my counter argument why I'm not Greek Orthodox is that Greek Orthodoxy in a sense doesn't have a year zero problem. It has a year like 200 problem. Sure. Right. In other words, what it, it seeks is this ideal spot for the development of the church that's, that's located somewhere in the, the first few centuries of the church and then tries to preserve that. And I think that to, to some degree, the genius of the Roman Catholic church was its sense of it is a church of 20 centuries, 24 time zones, two hemispheres, every rate. And it does have a, I don't want to use the word evolution, but maturation. Yeah. Development, growth. Development yeah. and growth, which Greek Orthodoxy doesn't have that, it doesn't, isn't seeking that magical year zero in the book of Acts, but it's looking at sort of like the height of the, 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 uh, the patriarchs in the mm-hmm. early church of the second, third, fourth century. And, and, and kind of preserving that liturgy and that theology and and everything else forever. Yeah, and, and there's always a danger of of nostalgia or of, of trying to hearken back to some imagined golden age. And that, of course, doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn from and even admire um, the achievements of the past. Um, I certainly think we should. Whether, but if, if we try and simply reclaim whether it's counter-Reformation Catholicism or yeah. high, the Catholicism of the high Middle Ages or even like right. 1950s Catholicism, yeah. um, you, we can admire and learn from all of the wealth from all of those ages, but- We the, can't recreate right. those times. It can never be, the, you know, the 12th century. Right. You again. can't fossilize the church in amber. No. And I mean, when we go on pilgrimage to those places, so you go to a CC and you say, oh my gosh, this was so wonderful. We can't bring those days back. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you say, we can't- hold another argument for another day, you know, like the Tridentine mass and all this kind of stuff. I don't know that you can like re, you know, capture that. It, it, you know, the sense of the, I think that the genius of, of the Roman church is its sense that it is constantly maturing. And let's kind of end on that because I think mm-hmm. that's the, the, we needed an, a counter analogy instead of trying to constantly get back to that primitive first year zero. 
uh, one of the uh, a couple of analogies have been given for the church. One is the acorned oak thing, sure, or the mustard seed to use Jesus's parable. Yeah, why don't you unpack the acorned oak thing, which yeah. I, I kind of like because I can imagine a big giant oak coming. Right, from the sure. Acorn. I guess so, mustard yeah. seed isn't mustard plant. Well, isn't we're sitting out here at the One Whirling Adventure <laughs> secret compound, surrounded by oaks, and so why don't yeah. you? Yeah. So uh, uh, not uh, many mustard trees around here. No, I suppose not. Um, but uh, so a seed, whether it be an acorn or some other plant, is is planted in the ground and it grows naturally into a tree. That's what it is for. Um, that is not a corruption of an acorn in order to turn it into an oak. That that is how God designed it. And so the the acorn itself is a good thing, um, but it would not be good or serve its purpose if it stayed that way. And so similarly, the church of Acts. Um, is is the seed and Christ planted it and it grew um, into something that now covers the whole earth. Not and, just in and is not just in quantity, but isn't it not just in quantity? Sure, it didn't just grow; it got big, bigger. It 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 developed, so right, it has matures. leaves and branches, and, right? Exactly, and, and and it doesn't look like an, an an acorn anymore. But it's not that it's turned into something else or something alien. To not itself. only has it not turned into something else, it's the same entity, right? It so is, the same being. It's this. Right. It's not just a generic oak. It is that same acorn. It is the development of that same. Right. And it, and it has or is realizing its potential. Correct. Uh, another one would be even uh, a human, right? So mm -hmm. going from conception. Yeah. And, and, we, and we alluded to that earlier when you said, you know, we wouldn't admire someone for trying to stay a five-year-old their whole life. No. And as we grow and we mature, we are supposed to learn and we're supposed to get better. Mm -hmm. We don't invent new things. I'm still the same person that I was you know, in my mother's womb and, but I am matured by experience and learning and all the, the things that have happened in my life. And I bring that maturity. The other thing you and I were talking about this the other day is if you look at the cells in a human body. Mm -hmm. uh, so all the cells in your body are constantly going through a cycle of, you know, dying and, and being replaced mm -hmm. by new cells. So there's a weird sense in which I am in one sense in which I am the same person that I was yep. 10 years ago or 50 years ago, but in another sense, I'm not the same person because I'm the same person, which is a const const constitutive body made up of constantly replacing cells. And if we think of those cells as the members of the church over the the, the centuries, mm -hmm. individuals, but we're all still part of this growing, developing, living church. Absolutely. G.K. Chesterton had a money quote, because like, every G.K. Chesterton yes. quote is like the, the money quote guy. <laughs> share his, to kind of wrap this up, share his money quote on this one. Um, yeah. So uh, G.K. Chesterton, reflecting on the idea of tradition, um, uses this phrase called the democracy of the dead, where he says, essentially, like, why do you default to the present generation who's only extraordinary virtues that they still happen to be walking around. They're still alive in here with us. Um, he, he saw it as a much more democratic and much wiser thing to incorporate the wisdom of tradition of, of the people of the ages that have come before us. Yeah. In particular, his notion of democracy is when, when we ask what's true, why don't they get a vote? Mm-hmm. In, into truth, um, you know. So, if you were going to say what's true, we we take a poll not only of those who are still walking around or what little we grasp of the people who were in the first generation or our current generation, but we listen to all of the insights into the truth uh, that two thousand years of Christians right. had generated. Yeah, and that, and that of course doesn't mean that truth is you know 
determined by no. by a vote, but it means no, that no. that our understanding um, shouldn't be dictated by no. simply present. Right, but they had insights into right. you yeah. know right. So we have the, we have the deposit of faith that's given to the apostles, mm-hmm. and then just like we were talking about uh, when you say, well, Aquinas had the benefit of learning so much about. Uh, philosophy for 1200 years that he could explain mm-hmm. the concept of the Trinity in new ways, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, the year zero problem, it comes up all the time in conversations with Protestants and with evangelicals. And if you're considering Catholicism, you know, one of the, the benefits, uh, I think one of the attractions, one of the glories of Catholicism is that, as Chesterton said, it doesn't make you a, a prisoner of your own generation, of your mm-hmm. of your own age, nor of a sort of a fantasy of the first year, but you gain the wisdom of... Uh, as Corey said, or the treasury of all of the insights and experiences of Christians for 20 centuries uh, from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Yes. So, yeah. Amen. All right. Hey, thanks, Corey. Yep. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.